If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus. We're looking this evening at a passage out of Exodus 23. We will look together at verses 20 through 33 as we continue on in the series considering Christ in the Old Testament. Most recently, Pastor Barrett has been walking us through the temple and the tabernacle and priesthood and the sacrificial system of Old Covenant Israel and showing us how those things pointed to Christ. And then in his last sermon, uh, we considered clean and unclean animals, uh, purity laws, those difficult portions of scripture. We feel like we're getting into the weeds when we get into those passages in the Mosaic Law. And I thought it might be helpful to follow up on what Pastor Barrett did by looking at the subject of holy war harem warfare in redemptive history, a very difficult subject, and yet one I hope that we will leave this place with having more clarity and appreciation for why there are so many passages in the Old Testament about Israel's conquest of the Promised Land and um, the harem warfare and the the genocide, the Canaanite genocide that God commands, Um, difficult truths truths that often uh, are used to level an attack against the truth of Christianity. And yet, as I hope you'll see, truths that are foundational to Christianity in a way that maybe you have not thought of that. And so I want us to look at Exodus 23, beginning in verse 20. This is one of many places in the Pentateuch in which we find passages where God is commanding Israel to uh, devote to destruction the nations in the land that he promised Abraham when he brings them into that land. You'll find a passage in Numbers. You'll find several in Deuteronomy. Uh, You'll find one even earlier than this, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, which is the first time God mentions that he is going to bring judgment on the Amorites. And when the iniquity of the people of the land is full, when God brings Abraham's descendants into the land, what he's going to do. And here in Exodus, I've chosen this passage for us to consider this evening. Um, There are numerous helpful lessons for us. And so beginning in verse 20, uh, we read the Lord saying through Moses, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression." For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. 
And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was much younger than I am now. I was at a conference, uh, a pastor's conference, uh, where there were many ministries represented out in the foyer book tables. And one ministry in particular was that of a man who had come out of a movement that began in the 70s that was sort of a, uh, a Christian, militant, political, theological movement. Um, I could have just told you it was theonomy, but I didn't. So there we have it. Um, and, and I had a number of friends wrestling with, with this form of new theology and, and asking, you know, what I thought about it. And I said, look, I, I took some of my friends over to the table. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I think about it. I want you to look at the book covers on all the books. There were militant fists. There were barbed wire. <laughs> there, there were tanks. And I said, does that say Christian theology to you? (laughs) And they said, I think I get what you mean. I said, you don't get what I mean. (laughs) Um, And yet, and yet, when we read the Bible, there is a militant, God-ordained command to the church to wipe out a particular people at a particular point in time in redemptive history And we have to grapple with why that's in the Bible. And we can't just say, well, God commanded it. And we can't just say, well, I think, you know, that was just for Israel as a nation and this and that. And just come up with some sort of explanation that makes us feel better. There is a real reason why God commanded harem warfare in the old covenant. There is a very real reason why he did that for Israel, for himself, and there is a very real reason why we can benefit from it today when we read our Bibles, but not in the way that so many mistakenly think that we could carry over into some New Testament theology, a militant, political, national movement of Christians against pagan nations. Now, as I noted already here in Exodus 23, we have one of many passages in the Pentateuch that um, God is giving Israel instruction. They are in the wilderness. They, they will be there for decades. God is telling them what is going to happen when he fulfills his promise to Abraham, and they come into the land, how they are to conduct themselves, what they are to do. And, and among the many things he tells them is that they are to devote to destruction the Canaanite nations in the land. Now, you'll know if you've read your Bible that these are the descendants, many of them, of Ham, the son of Noah, the cursed son of Noah. Remember, Ham um, probably mocked his father, his righteous father, when he was passed out drunk in the tent, and, and, and God pronounced a curse on not Ham, but on Canaan, his son, from whom the Canaanite nations came. And, and these nations become some of the most formidable enemies of Israel in the Old Covenant. They become a snare to Israel. God will actually tell them in the book of Numbers, if you don't deal with them, they will become a thorn in your side. They will become a perpetual burden to you, which is exactly what happens to them. 
And yet, here God is commanding Israel to deal with these nations. Um, and, and at the foundation of what is happening, what we want to consider tonight, is the principle of consecration. Consecration. Now, I want us to just look at three things as we turn our attention to this passage. I want us to consider the command for consecration. I want us to then consider the blessing of consecration. And then I want us to consider the rationale for consecration. The command, the blessing, and the rationale. Now, notice that it is the Lord who tells Israel what he's going to do. Notice there in verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you. Now, I I think that's Christ. I think this is the commander of the Lord's army that appears to Joshua when Israel first crosses the Jordan and they first step foot into the promised land and they have to deal with those first cities that they're going to overthrow and the commander of the Lord's army comes and appears before Joshua and, and, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And the, the, the commander of the Lord's army is the Lord. This is Christ. And he says, no, neither. Um, Joshua wanted to know whether the Lord would be with him in his battle and he didn't realize the battle was in his heart, whether he was going to trust the Lord whether he was going to follow the Lord, whether he was going to do what the Lord wanted him to do on behalf of God's people. And here the Lord is saying, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you in the way, to bring you to the place which I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now, the Lord is essentially saying what I'm about to tell you, you need to obey to the full. I'm sending my messenger, who's going to lead you and guide you, instruct you. And what is it that you are to pay careful attention to? He says, if you do pay careful attention to his voice, I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. So, So here the Lord is saying he is the one doing this. This is not Israel determining it will be good for us to exercise radical genocide in the land because we think that would be good. Nor is it Israel saying we think this would be good and we'll do this as an act of devotion to God. This is the Lord saying this is what I'm doing. I am exercising judgment And I am commanding you to be instruments of that judgment when I bring you into the land. Notice, he says, he says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them. Elsewhere, he says, devote them to destruction. That's where we get the word harem, devote or destroy in Hebrew, harem warfare. You are to devote them to destruction, the oldest and the youngest. The grandmothers and the little children. And the Lord says, you should destroy all of them. Um, God is commanding Israel to obey him because God is going to separate Israel for himself. He is going to consecrate them unto himself. He has already said he's going to make them a special people. Um, He's already blessed Abraham. He's already given him covenant promises. He's continuing now to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in making 
them a separate people of all the people on the face of the earth, not because they were better. Remember, he says you were least in number. They were no better than the nations. Um, They deserve exactly what's going to happen to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Ammonites. In fact, the entire history of Israel teaches that principle. Even when you look at the plagues and the exodus when God brought Israel out of Egypt and, and he makes a distinction through most of the plagues that Israel in the land of Goshen, they're safe, they're protected. The plague doesn't come there. And then you come to the latter plagues and, and that, that distinction starts to wear off until you come to the last plague, the death of the firstborn. And if Israel doesn't have a Passover lamb, if they don't have a substitutionary sacrifice, they will suffer the same plague as Egypt. Why? Because they deserve the same judgment that, that Israel should have known from the beginning The only reason we are not coming under the judgment of God is because God has been merciful and has provided us with a sacrifice that can take our place, the Passover lamb, that can can stand between God's holiness and our sin. And yet Israel is going to miss that. They're going to miss that throughout most of their history in the Old Covenant. And yet God is commanding consecration for Israel. Um, Greg Lanier, he's an RTS professor, puts it this way, God is in effect drawing his people into a war against the false gods that challenge his rule in order that he might consecrate a nation through which he may be worshipped rightly on earth. That's a really well summed up statement about holy war. God is drawing his people into a war against the false gods that challenge his rule in order that he might consecrate a nation through which he may be worshipped rightly on earth. So there's a command for consecration. Now, we'll come back to that. There is then blessings of consecration. Notice in verses 25 and 26 that there is the promise of provision. God says, if you do this, he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from you. None will miscarry or be barren in the land. This is, this is more fully developed in those covenant blessings that are pronounced at the end of Deuteronomy, that God is saying, if you will obey, I will provide for you. If you do what I say, it will go well for you. And then there is the provision of security. Notice verse 29 and 30. Very, very important. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. So the Lord's saying, I'm going to do this with purpose and intention to keep you secure, to sustain you in the land I'm bringing you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So there is the promise of provision, there is the promise of security. And then there is the promise of expansion. Notice verse 31. He says very clearly, I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out. You shall make no covenant with them and, and their gods. They shall not dwell in the land. God is going to give Israel all of the borders, north, south, east, and west, as he promised Abraham, he's going to give that to them. He's going to expand his people. He's going to make them fruitful, and he's going to multiply them. That's the principle. I am going to make you fruitful. I am going to multiply you. Um, 
there is a important word here for us that when God separates a people unto himself in either the Old or the New Covenant, it would do us good to know that there is blessing associated with sanctification, holiness, and consecration unto God. Um, It's not health, wealth, prosperity. This was physical blessings, and they don't carry over one for one into the New Covenant. Don't make that mistake. They don't do that. But there is blessing. There is God's goodness toward his people when they live as consecrated, sanctified, holy people before him. Um, The third thing here is the rationale for consecration. And there are two things here. I've noted one already, but the first is purity of worship. Notice how often they're gods, they're gods, they're gods, they're gods. At, at, At ground zero of why God is doing this is he doesn't want Israel to worship and serve other gods. You know, we tend to think adultery and murder and then various forms of sexual sin and uh, forms of abuse are the worst things. No, idolatry in the Old Covenant is the worst thing. And all those other things are associated with it. Worshiping and serving other gods. How often God is bringing an indictment against his people for worshiping other gods. Um, You know, I I think about how in our nation people are, are trifling with Eastern mysticism they're, they're playing with idolatry. That's a very serious thing. That is not something we should just get comfortable with because we're Americans and we live in a pluralistic society. God, the infinite God, hates idolatry. And every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the earth is made in his image and is made to worship him alone. Essentially, the rationale for harem warfare is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And then holiness of life, as we've already noted. Turn over quickly to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, if you would. And you'll see this principle spelled out there in Deuteronomy 7, a parallel passage in many respects. And notice that Moses records this for us. You shall make no covenant... With them, the nations, you shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Um, The Lord is wanting to preserve true religion at this point in redemptive history. And that's why he's commanding Israel to do what he's commanding them to do. Um, Now, I fear that many Christians may get what I just said, and that's all they get about this. And, And they settle there. But, but you have to understand what was behind those gods, was the evil one. The Bible is everywhere tying demons to false gods among Israel's nations, demon gods. And, and Israel 
is a type of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, and these nations are types of the seed of the serpent. You see, this is, a, this is an outworking, as is everything else, of Genesis 3.15. Here God is showing the conflict he created in Genesis 3.15 when God said, I will put enmity, warfare, between the seed of the woman and the, and the serpent. He will bruise his heel, he will crush his head, and we know that's about the Lord Jesus. And yet, we sometimes fail to understand that even here with harem warfare, it is in the context of Genesis 3.15. God is saying, I am going to destroy the evil one. I'm going to destroy the kingdom of Satan. I'm going to destroy his stronghold in, in false worship. I'm going to redeem a people for myself that I am going to wash and purify so that they will worship me in spirit and in truth. Um. That is certainly foundational to understanding harem warfare in the Bible. Um, I think one of the helpful things for us to remember is that God didn't command Israel to wipe out every nation on earth. It's very important. Um, And so we have to understand what was the land of Israel. It was a stepping stone in the restoration of Eden. It was a stepping stone in the restoration of the garden. A land flowing with milk and honey. That sounds like a garden. And, and remember, the temple will go there, God's dwelling place, and there will be all that botanical imagery around the temple in the promised land. And, and what we're meant to get before there's a temple, the promised land is the temple, God is going to dwell with his people there in that place at that time for that purpose in, in, in his outworking of the plan of redemption in bringing about ultimately the new heavens and the new earth in which he will dwell with his people in righteousness. And in order for God to dwell in the promised land because it's his land, the land has to be cleansed. The temple has to be cleansed. Don't miss this. Temple cleansing is a big theme in scripture, and this is the first cleansing of the temple. Adam was supposed to cleanse the garden temple, and he failed. He didn't keep the evil out. He didn't obey. He didn't protect Eve. He didn't bring forth righteous image bearers. He, didn't, he wasn't fruitful and multiplying, and so, so then God raises up another son, Israel, a typological son. In Exodus 4.22, he says, Israel is my son. Adam was his son. He failed. Now he enters into covenant with Israel. He brings them into a, a, a new temple, and the temple has to be cleansed. And does Israel cleanse the temple? No. No, they never fully cleanse the temple. Um, they allow the corruption. Even one of Israel's most righteous kings, Solomon, has a thousand women and their hearts are turned away, turn his heart away because he worships their gods. He sets up the astras and, and, and he, he does exactly what God said they would do all the way back in the days of Moses. And then Ezekiel gets that vision into the temple and God's indictment against Israel. He says to Ezekiel, what do you see? And he says, I see idols everywhere, wall to wall, that, that all of Israel was idolatrous. And... When Nehemiah rebuilds the temple, you'll remember Sanballat and Tobias, the enemies of the church, they're in the temple, and he kicks them out because these pagans have defiled the rebuilt temple, and then he gives it a second cleansing. 
because God is so holy, he, he, wants, he wants to preserve that consecration. And then Jesus comes, and he cleanses the temple because there's corruption in the temple. He does it twice, I believe. Um, and remember, and this is beautiful, this is where these things are going to dovetail. Remember when Jesus steps out of the Jordan and onto the promised land, and, and he's, in the, the, he's in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the evil one. Here he is in combat with the one who lay behind all the Canaanite gods. Here's the seed of the woman in combat with the seed of the serpent, and, and he's coming to cleanse the temple. He, he overcomes the evil one by by quoting scripture out of Deuteronomy, where God had told Israel to cleanse the land, and he, he is the true Israel, and he's doing what Israel never did. He's obeying where Israel failed to obey. He is doing what he alone can do. Listen to this. G.K. Beale puts it this way. Jesus' victory over temptation appears to have been prepared, uh, appears to have prepared him to conquer the one who was the ultimate satanic prince of the Canaanites and of all wicked nations and to conquer the land in a way that Israel had not been able to do. Isn't that awesome? And then what does Jesus do? He goes and he starts casting out demons. Right? Why is there such a heightened uh, sense of demon possession in the Gospels and we don't see it today? It's not because we're more scientific or technological or modern. It's because this is the zenith of redemptive history. Here is the seed of the woman and the land is full of corruption and perversions. And Jesus is coming to cleanse the land. He's coming to cast out the evil one. Um, he will ultimately do that on the cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be exercised, cast out. He's talking about the cross. He disarms principalities and powers. He, he purifies the land, so to speak, but, and this is amazing, he does something more when he's on the cross. Jesus is engaged in holy war with God because of our sin. Don't miss this. Remember, Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. What happens at the cross? When Jesus is nailed to the tree, all of your filth and all of my filth, all of our corruption, idolatry, sin, depravity, selfishness, pride, lust, anger, uh, d dishonoring to our parents and every other sinful thing we've ever done is, is put on Jesus and, and God makes war against the eternal son on the cross and the temple is cleansed. Isn't that awesome? The temple is cleansed. And then he sends his spirit to wash his people and the new covenant church is the temple. We are the dwelling place of God and he he washes his people with the Spirit. He cleanses his temple. He purifies his church. Um, and then the Apostle Paul tells us that now we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities, and we need to take up the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And the believers are now engaged. We are commanded by God, just like Israel, to be engaged in holy war, not with physical nations, 
but against our own sin, our own flesh, and the attacks of the evil one. Every day of our life, we are called to put sin to death, to war against those things that if we leave them, they will become thorns in our side. The Puritans used to love to um, talk about sin as the, the Canaanites that remain within our hearts. I don't think that's illegitimate spiritualizing, that, that our sin is like the inhabitants of the land that we're called because it's already been won. We heard this morning, we, we've, we've already overcome Christ has already conquered. That's why we don't want to miss going through Jesus to get to our call to engage in holy war now. Um, John Bunyan wrote a book. You may not know much about it. It's called The Holy War, and he talks about man's soul, and the believers need to guard the eye gate and the ear gate and the mouth gate and the various ways that we are engaged in battle against our own sin in the flesh. And then I would say we are engaged in warfare, and this is very important. We are engaged in warfare every time we take the gospel out to the nations. Isn't that awesome? How does Jesus conquer the nations? He conquers them through the preaching of the gospel. That's why books with fist and barbed wire and tanks are not apropos to New Covenant Christianity. Um, We don't, we don't, we're not going to dominate this world if we're just smart enough, if we just get out into all the substructures and take over the banking economies. and We're not. We're going we're gonna to see the victory of Jesus every time sinners in every nation on this earth are converted. Isn't that marvelous? What Israel did that causes so many people to shudder in horror actually helps us better understand what God has called us to be engaged in that is so good and beautiful and right. Um, I want to encourage you tonight as we think about this to ask yourself the question, when I think about my relationship to the Lord, do I think about the fact that he has called me to live as a consecrated man or woman or boy or girl? Now, even in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, get out from among them, come out from among them, be separate, and I will receive you. This is not fundamentalist separatism. This is live in the world as holy people who are out from among them because we are not of this world, and yet live among these people as consecrated people for their blessing, for their good, for their salvation. Um, and so I want to ask you if, you if you think about that often, what God has called you to. And then secondly, I want to, again, circle back around to the blessing of consecration. Um, you know, I think all of us would acknowledge that we convince ourselves that sin is going to make us happy, and, and it never does. And somehow we convince ourselves that obeying the Lord out of gratitude is, is going to make us miserable, and it won't. It never will. Obeying the Lord out of gratitude will never make you miserable. Disobeying the Lord out of a desire to please yourself will always, will always lead to misery. There is a blessing. There is, there is, 
there is goodness to pursuing a life of consecration and holiness. And then I want to ask you if you are considering um, how we are to be engaged on those two levels. One, personally, are we fighting against our sin? Are we taking up the armor of God? Are we putting on each piece with prayer? Are we conscious that we're going out into a battle and, and it is a battle for our souls and that we are to fight vigilantly for that? And then are we thinking about others around us? Because we are in every way, every day of our life engaged in spiritual warfare and in holy war on an individual level and then on a global level. So missions is holy war spiritually. Um, You know, I'll leave you with this thought. One of the beautiful things about this passage, and one I don't want us to miss, is that, again, the Lord is the one who's doing it. Isn't that awesome? He says at the outset, I'm going to do this. I want you to do this because I'm going to do this. There is a guarantee that in the warfare in which we're engaged, there is a promise that God is going to be victorious, that as we've heard, he's already overcome. We will overcome because he has overcome. I've always been perplexed by that statement in Romans 8. Um, We are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? You're either a conqueror or a loser. But, But we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Isn't that amazing? So as we go out this week ahead and as you go out into the world, prepared to make battle, I hope that the Lord will encourage you to be thinking consciously about his call to consecration, what Christ has done to accomplish that, and what he calls us to in our engagement in it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we need to be reminded so desperately of these things, how often we go through our days carelessly, how often we do not take up arms against our sin as we ought. And yet, Lord, we are grateful to be reminded that um, you have already dealt with our sin, that you have already atoned for our sin, that you have already made war against our sin on the cross. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son to disarm principalities and powers. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have conquered the one who conquered us, And we pray this week ahead that you would give us strength and zeal and purpose of mind to enter in on the battle that you have called us, and that you would give us a great sense that you are the one at work in us, and that you are the one giving us the victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.